Good evening, Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, coming to you on the 30th of December, 2023. Um, we talked a little bit, and I do mean a very small fraction of time, on the various stereoisomers of these oxygenated fatty acids we've been discussing, overall called eicosanoids, obviously, but specifically the leukotrienes. I want to remind you about handedness in chemistry, uh, something I go over periodically, and I don't think it's uh, an incorrect time to do it again right now. So let's do this. You know, there is a great deal of oppositional chemical processes. And what I mean by that, you have opposing centers of carbon within a molecule that can react in ways that are unique to that center based on the structure of the electron orbitals around that carbon. And that means there is a specificity of handedness because of carbon being capable of being chiral. So that oppositional chemical processing has to be orchestrated in biological systems with essentially a perfection. Now, why is that? It's because the biological system works quite well until it stops working and then dies. This is at the cellular level, at the tissue level, at the organ level and at the organismal level. So for those changes to occur in such a way that life ceases, life, something that only comes from other life, by the way, um, essentially begs the question about the biochemical processes themselves and the fact that there is so much specificity, even within an individual cell such that the enzymatic machinery involved in generating, say, diastereoisomers from, enant from different kinds of enantiomers um, exist, but there are a great deal of chemical shifts that may occur because of minor changes in that chemistry related to the reactivity of the compounds with other enzymes that are not directly associated with the biosynthesis or degradation. And what that suggests is that the biochemical processes are not fragile, they are highly complex, and they are interdigitated, and they are covalently and non-covalently required to interact in very specific ways. And the reason that living systems are so sturdy and continue to maintain life, and carry out cell division or differentiation and development, and maintain life even at a homeostatic level for humans some 70 years, 70 to 80 years before the Hayflick limit is reached and cellular division ceases, senescence comes in, um, the telomeres shorten, and the cell no longer can function as a resident cell in a given tissue. And even then, the organism can survive for a very long period of time because not every cell goes through that process at the same time.
there are temporal signatures in all of metabolic and chemical play that occur within the cell and within subcellular organelles so that some cells within a tissue can last uh, longer or shorter periods of time depending on signaling that requires that cell to perhaps uh, become homeostatic or go through autophagy, meaning the catabolism of all the macromolecules and then rebuilding those macromolecules from the primary precursors, for example, for proteins, for from amino acids, of course, using the transfer RNAs and the transfer RNA synthetases. And of course, for translation to occur, you have to have the messenger RNA transcript all appropriately spliced in, in either the cytoplasmic polyribosomes or in the endoplasmic reticulum. And when it's in the endoplasmic reticulum, we know there are glycosylations that must occur, and those glycosylations require the pyrophosphate, as well as all the nucleotide sugars that are going to be involved in the synthesis of a very specific glycoprotein. For example, something like IL-1-beta, a pro-inflammatory cytokine that still needs proteolytic processing before it becomes fully potent and binds to its receptor, something we were talking about just last lecture. <clears throat> so the handedness that is necessary for biological compatibility such as the gross descriptors, L-amino acids in the main, and the corresponding, corresponding symmetry between the codon and the amino acyl transfer RNAs, as well as the more significant complementarity at the macromolecular level of DNA and RNA, all required for the transcriptional sequence at the outset of chemical, and more significantly for our discussions in biochemistry, there is the possibility still of specific diastereoisomers. And that's the basis of the chiral center associated with carbon. So there are also enantiomers and the distinction is that the diastereoisomer possesses the same chemical formula and atomic connectivity, but differs, the, the diastereoisomers differ between their exact arrangement. Now, the full family include constitutional isomers, which is the same formula, different connectivity, stereoisomers, same connectivity, differential arrangement, enantiomers, which are indeed stereoisomers that are non-superimposable mirror images, or diastereoisomers. These are stereoisomers that are not non-superimposable mirror images. Okay, so now you've got the gambit of um, what can occur just in a carbon center. And now you know that some carbon would be achiral if it's already bound and therefore cannot participate in chirality. Right? And we talked about achiral centers becoming chiral centers upon reactivity. So a simple um, meme you can use for kind of separating out all these different types of isomeric structures is you ask questions such as, do, do these compounds have the same molecular formula? 
if the answer is no, then they're not isomers, flat out. If the answer is yes, then they will be isomers. Then once you have decided from this interrogation of the chemical compounds in question that they are isomers, you ask, are they, do they have the same conductivity? If the answer is no, then they're constitutional isomers. If the answer is yes, then they are stereoisomers. Then finally, the question is asked, the last one, at least in this series, are they non-superimposable mirror images? The answer is yes, they're enantiomers. The answer is no, they're diastereoisomers. Okay. So you see there's a world of asymmetry and it involves multiple integrations of organizational molecular arrangement and rearrangement. Recall that stereoisomers have the same conductivity but a different arrangement of their atoms in space and time. So there is only one way to connect C6H12 together to form cyclohexane. And only one way to connect the same atoms together to get one hexene. But there are two ways to connect C6H12 to give molecules with names like 2-hexene and 3-methyl-1-pentene. And there are four ways to connect C6H12 to give compounds such as 1-ethyl-2-methyl-cyclopropane. Okay. So, um, you can this the rest of the the discussion of stereoisomers and chiral centers that I really must perform a video lecture for. I will leave now bracketed off because we have to concern ourselves with IUPAC names and how they are distinguished between E and Z. So, for example, you have E two hexene and you have Z2-hexene. And that has to do with where the methyl group is versus the proton in association with that double bond. Okay, So Z2-hexene, the methyl group, is above that double bond center. And for that, that Z2-hexene, and for E2-hexene, the methyl group is to the right of that double bond structure and the proton's above. Okay, and so you have to distinguish all of those centers, and that's what we were doing when we were giving those systematic names, which I only gave you some of the full systematic names for some of those leukotrienes. But we could go on and on and on with this, and we could really completely describe how the IUPAC um, nomenclature and numbering systems function. And again, I promise I will do that, uh, but I have to do it in an open video lectures i can show you the structures and i can use my pointer i guess it, in my case it would be the mouse because i'm not in the classroom so i can't use a pointer like on a chalkboard i can certainly use the mouse to show you um, how these different structures are arranged now i want you to consider that biochemical polymers that you encounter in everyday authentic biochemistry like polypeptides nucleic acids complex carbohydrates, and the entire constellation of lipids, all will adopt a one-handed conformation 
as a result of the chirality of their constituent atoms. So what that means is that even at the level of elementary particles, asymmetry exists due to parity violation in the weak nuclear force. So we would have to then get into a little bit of particle chemistry and particle physics to be able to pull this out. And I would like to do that as well. So some of these lectures are, uh, are already ones that I have formulated and I would add to them because I try to put in a clinical feature. But I'll just say at this point, while the origin of homochirality in living systems is still obscure. What's the origin of that? So we're not talking about substances, remember? We're talking about event ontologies. So we have to ask the question, how does the chirality of given, that is, now observable structures in living cells come about? How is it obtained? So we can talk about enzymatic reactions having a specific chirality. We can talk about receptors binding to only specific chiral centers and not others. But that's after these structures are synthesized. So, so okay, you go up one level and you say, here's the enzymatic reaction that will leave you with a four cis, six trans, hexadecinoic acid. That's fine. But the question is, how is it that those enzymes specifically elaborate those structures? What's the requirement from the cell? What is the information that's being fed that requires that structure here and now? So it used to be easy to say that, well, that's the inheritance of DNA. All the DNA, again, as you well know, it's transcribed into R messenger RNA, transfer RNA, ribosomal RNA, microRNAs, right? Uh, small interfering RNAs, long non-coding RNAs, all that different transcriptome. And then we say, well, then some, only some, the messenger RNAs, and only if they're five prime capped and they have polyadenylated uh, uh, termini, and they make it into a, uh, the cytoplasm, for example, to meet up with polyribosomes, polyribosomal complex forms and you generate the polyribosome and you bring in the transfer RNAs and the tra and transfer RNA synthetases and you add those amino acids specific tRNAs at their carboxy terminus and you start generating that polypeptide, right, through the three different centers of the ribosome. It still doesn't get to the question, how do those living systems maintain that what we call now HOMO chirality. That means in its homeostatic state. So selection pressure that used to be envisaged for uh, such things as, you know, how living organisms evolve, right? There's, you cannot explain all the complex chirality that we observe in the cell. And we know this too, because when organic chemists want to synthesize a specific compound to study it in the laboratory, something that's been going on for well over 100 years now, they learned to their dissatisfaction that they make racemic mixtures. 
when you use any kind of normal organic chemical catalysts to generate a given carbon-carbon bond center if there's a potential for chirality. But the cell has no problem always with the synthesis of the appropriate isomer, always the appropriate isomer. And even when there's an unusual isomer, it is appropriate because it's necessary to bind to a specific receptor. So when I say homochiral, uh, so, so when I say the origin of homochiral living systems remains obscure, you understand there is an entire story behind that that has to do with basically a, um, well, a lack of obtaining an adequate argument for selection pressure generating all those structures and we'll leave it for that for now we'll also say though the possibility of its connectivity with broken symmetries at larger or smaller length scalars involves its centrality to the biomolecular structure so that's obvious okay so it's clear that you have single-handed forms of certain biomacro molecules and that they interlock in specific ways that depend upon that handedness. And it's absolutely required. Now, dynamic artificial organochemical systems, such as ones generating helical polymers and other kinds of supramolecular structures, thus have provided a means to study on these mechanisms, at least at the level of organic chemistry. And so the question is, how are these mechanisms transmitted and amplified to generate the stereochemical information, which are the key processes to understand the context of the origin and function of the biological homochirality? That's the question. So we can describe the control over stereochemical information transfer in self-assembled systems, and that will help us get to some developmental ideas, some hypothetical deductions of new applications in chiral recognition chemistry, and because we have good uh, computer-based models, then we can use uh, mass spectroscopy and NMR to separate during asymmetric catalysis with the in intention of generating certain molecular devices such as pharmaceuticals. But all of that does not occur in a living system. You understand this? It's the organic chemists, and sometimes the bioorganic chemists using enzymes as well, because you can use enzymes in bioorganic chemistry to generate specific chiral, chiral centers. Remember, this isn't happening in the living system. So whatever is being synthesized is being synthesized one step at a time, or if you get lucky, a couple of steps will occur because one of them would be spontaneous. But that's what's necessary, multiple steps, and then isolating the intermediates, and then purifying that intermediate from whatever did not react, and then running through the next reaction, and so on and so on. But none of that explains how the living system coordinates it. All it does is mimic very 
poorly, uh, like a, say, a five-year-old child's stab at poetry and comparing that to Woodsworth, right? Yeah, it can be done, but the way it's being done is by you know, a slow process of trying to make, for example, words rhyme. But it has nothing to do with the contextual framework of, say, a poet's mind. Now, that's not even fair because at least the child is a human and can construct concepts and ideas and interlocutions to be able to generate the phenomena that is what's going on in the central nervous system relative to the powers of reason, that is, the faculties of reason. So a chemical laboratory doesn't have that, even though a chemist is carrying out these reactions. So it does not explain life. One time I was listening to a philosophy professor, this is a long time ago, and he was talking about the fact that, well, this whole understanding about vitalism, which was a theory at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, where people believed that there was something called the vital force. And the vital force was this new kind of phenomena that living things had. And the vital force, and, and they, of course, the, the people that were discussing this, for the most part, were not talking about a soul because they were trying to steer as far away as possible from theology for no good reason. Uh, but they were trying to explain what life is. So they said, well, there's this vital source. And so vitalism is something that, oh, some believe, for example, you could control via the free will, right? So will and representation, paper, uh, books like that were published. And then from will and representation, uh, Nietzsche comes up, right, with whole theories about how will is the entire force that drives living systems. But that's completely absurd because will doesn't make life, right? It doesn't make life. That procreation isn't synthesis of life. It's procreation, meaning it's what? Life from life. It's not ex nihilo. So I get to that level you know, that very earthy level of describing this, because you have to understand all the stereochemistry that we talk about is observed. So it's not as if we're trying to piece it together like some kind of three-dimensional, actually four-dimensional, because time is always involved, complex jigsaw puzzle in space-time, and then say, this is what living systems are. This is what a biochemical system is. We're not even doing that. All we're doing is using descriptors. And remember, everything we say about all these structures is from the human mind. This is our way of trying to describe the phenomena that we encounter when we go looking for it. But what all of this is in itself, the noumenal edge of it, well, we have no way of knowing because we're using the lens of the sensoria, the lens of the senses by which we generate the phenomenological world. And that's all science discusses, is phenomena. It cannot discuss the thing in itself, only the thing for me, meaning how I, as a human, observe it. Right? Ding and zick. All right, so I went through all of that. I, I, I know that this is going a bit long. This was supposed to only be a prolegomena to get back into Lucotrienes, but I realized that, that I need to bring this up. It's at the end of the year. 
At the end of the year, I try to bring in a little bit more metaphysics and epistemology uh, into the biochemistry lectures. I do that because in order to be a biochemist, one has to involve all of their philosophical training or lack thereof. And if that lack thereof occurs, it's something that can be repaired. It can be repaired by studying a good metaphysical literature. And I would say start with Plato, particularly the Socratic dialogues. In fact, one in particular, I would start with Timaeus. Uh, and if you can get through the Timaeus, and you should take copious notes, then you're starting to get a handle on what we mean by metaphysics. And by the way, the Timaeus also does a fair amount of uh, um, apprehension of um, epistemology. So anyway, let me check our time. I hope that we can do a little bit of chemistry, biochemistry before we're done. But yeah, I've got five minutes left. <laughs> all right. So now, now, that I, now that I've taken all that time, I'm going to remind you, okay, because now we've gone through that um, modality. And now I'm going to get back into uh, other categories. So remind yourself, acosanoids are evolutionarily conserved bioactive lipids. They are absolutely essential mediators of that homeostatic and inflammatory response. Beyond that, eicosanoids are potent regulators of that immune system. So it's not simply inflammation. That's simply triggering at the transcriptional level the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. It's modulating the bioenergetics and the cell division framework uh, at, at the level of cell cycle, the specific proteome through the control over the AKT mTOR system in each cell. And these lipids are involved in all of that. Now, lipid, these lipids, these eicosanoids, aren't the only thing involved, as you know, because transcription factors and, of course, the DNA, the response element in the DNA, and all the adapter molecules for the transcription factor complexes, and the endomembranous system, which is controlling the configuration of polypeptide transport from endomembranous regions, from, say, the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi to the nuclear envelope, and thence into the regulation of transcription. All of that is functioning, as, as well as all the other epigenetic uh, uh, molecular patterning that must occur for normal immune response. Remember, we went over that. We go over that often. So I'm just saying that now we're introducing just, just the leukotrienes, but they are intimately involved in all the, all the parameters that normally occur in each of the immune cells in a specific way. So remember the alveolar macrophages before, um, uh, as opposed to the bone-derived macrophages, right? In the lung, there are differential alterations of expression of genes in those two types of macrophages controlling M1, M2. And of course, those are just rough poles. There's a lot many intermediates, macrophage um, developmental biology. But that the leukotrienes play a role in that, right? And how significant is that? Well, that's the difference between getting over a respiratory disease and becoming morbidly ill in it. That's right. So I think I'm going to leave you with that. 
because um, I, I want to get back into leukotriene metabolism and specific clinical associations. And we're going to go through this um, at the rate that's necessary, pretty fast, but I want to be able to cover this series of lectures. And this is going to obviously go into the new year, 2024. Now, I did promise you that I was going to go back and do my ethanol lectures because you know that I am very much against ethanol, that is al so-called alcohol in use by humans. I think because I said this enough times, ethanol is a cytotoxin and a neurotoxin, even at low concentrations. So I do like to talk about ethanol being a toxin to try to get more people than less people to think about when they're having a good time celebrating, for example, around New Year's, to not drink alcohol. And so I'm going to try to fit that in as well. It's going to be hard, but you know me, I do find ways to uh, plot half hours here and there. After all, what is my job but to be your professor in authentic biochemistry? At least one of the jobs I carry with me. All right, Dr. Dan Guerra on 30 December 2023. I'm wishing you a very pleasant Saturday evening. Bye for now.